This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I uh, want to welcome you all here tonight. My name is uh, Jeff Tabus. I'm emergency physician at UCSF. I'm standing in tonight for Dr. Barron. And uh, it's my pleasure tonight to introduce our um, two speakers. So our first, our speaker tonight, our author, is Dr. Sharon Kaufman. She's PhD. She's a chair of the Department of Anthropology, History, and Social Medicine here at UCSF. Um, her work explores topics at the intersection of medical knowledge and society's expectations for health. She's uh, published several books, and she's here tonight to speak about her newest book, Ordinary Medicine, Extraordinary Treatments, Longer Lives, and Where to Draw the Line. Um, it's an ethnographic story about the dilemmas 21st century American healthcare poses. Uh, our interviewer tonight is Dr. Dawn Gross, MD, PhD. Um, she's a writer and radio host of Dying to Talk on NPR. Um, she's the Arthur M. Coppola Family Chair for the Department of Supportive Care Medicine. Um, no, that was on your former, former. <laughs> now she's an attending physician at UCSF in the Department of Hospital Medicine and Palliative Care. Um, she is triple boarded in hospice and palliative care, hematology, and internal medicine. So welcome, and we're looking forward to hearing tonight. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming out tonight. And uh, you're in for a treat. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Dr. Kaufman over the last year, and she's got a lot of wisdom as well as real expertise and knowledge to share with you, um, and I think you'll really enjoy her book. I want you to know that we have some assumptions about you here in the audience that we assume you're interested in getting healthcare, in getting great healthcare, and that how to navigate our ever complex system, increasingly so, may become a little overwhelming. And so we're assuming maybe you'd like some insight in how to do that. We're also assuming that you've noticed there's been volumes of knowledge becoming increasingly accessible to you, and maybe how to sift through that for yourselves, as well as how does your healthcare team sift through that and come up with the ways we decide together, ideally, we should be caring, helping to care for you. In addition to those assumptions, some of the things we anticipate and really intend for you to walk away with tonight is a new appreciation for why and how your healthcare team discusses and organizes the information and offers you the care options that they do so that we can demystify and pull that curtain back, which is really the expertise that's sitting next to me, sitting in front of you. How do you pull that curtain back? So that ultimately, what we want you to come away with tonight is that you're empowered to know how to figure out what matters to you and how to advocate for the care that you want, for the people you care about, what they want, so 
so that the care that matters in that way is the only care that's delivered to you. So you're in good hands tonight. And with that, I want to start with a question I had when I first met Sharon, which is, what is medical anthropology? <laughs> I've never heard of it. So can you tell us what it and is? She and I work in the same institution, and she's never heard of it. So, so we have a lot of education to do. Well, you know, anthropology has come a long way since Margaret Mead went to Samoa. I think probably everybody here has read Coming of Age in Samoa, some of her later books as well. And I think everybody in this room has taken an anthropology course at some time or another in the far distant past. And what you recall, which is correct, is that after the post-War II era and into the 60s even and 70s, anthropologists went into the far-flung corners of the world to document and characterize vanishing cultures, vanishing societies, or societies that were involved in massive change, societies that were in some ways isolated either peasant societies or tribal societies that had not come into daily contact or assimilation with, uh, with the larger forces of modernism. But anthropology has changed considerably since that era, and by the time I was trained, anthropology no longer did that. Today, what we're concerned about are the complex, thorny, and ethical problems surrounding contemporary life, problems of poverty, problems of uh, infectious disease, issues of globalization, health inequality. And medical anthropologists particularly are concerned with the way these things track and travel throughout the world. So why is there health inequity in affluent countries? Why does the pharmaceutical industry charge so much for drugs? Why does it have such a big reach? What is it doing? Why is there an illegal market in organs around the world? These are the kinds of things that anthropologists are looking at. These aren't problems we can solve, but what we try and do is witness, pay attention, and give voice so that more people are aware of the complexity of these issues. So I'm one player in that big story of medical anthropologists. There's maybe 5,000 of us. But we speak a lot, and we write as much as we can, and we try and disseminate our findings to, to broad audiences, especially in the healthcare arena, to both providers and to patients and people who will be patients, which is all of us someday. And so what you do, in a sense, is act as a very intelligent fly on the wall. Absolutely. And absorb these stories, witness and absorb, and then translate. Translate for us. and interpret for different kinds of audiences. And I particularly uh, am interested in translating my findings both for patients and families and for physicians, nurses, social workers who work in the healthcare system. Because if you're a fly on the wall, and if you're well-trained, a well-trained fly on the wall, you can see multiple points of view. When you're working in the system, you're too busy trying to do what you need to do for patient care. Not to mention the fact that you're busy being bombarded with all the administrative uh, uh, tasks that you have to face to get through the day algorithms, filling out forms, doing everything on the electronic medical record that you have to do, seeing patients every 15 minutes, which is impossible already. You can't pay attention to multiple points of view 
or the broader picture. This is what I try and do, and this is what anthropologists try and do. One of the joys, I think, of doing research in anthropology is we get to take multiple points of view. So we get to see what situations are like for patients. We get to see what situations and the experience of, of patient care is like for families. And then we get to talk to or pay attention to the physicians and the nurses and hear and watch their perspective on the situation. And these perspectives, of course, are all different from one another. And part of the task in anthropology is to bring them together to show the conflicts sometimes and to show the contradictions and the differences in these points of view. And then hopefully other people can take that farther and say, well, what do we need to do to bring this together to make care better for everybody? And a little over a decade or just about a decade ago, you started to really hone in on the healthcare system's response or approach to end-of-life care. That's right. Really ahead of its time. You, you preceded the formalization of the specialty of hospice and palliative right. medicine. Well, uh, one of the things I've been very aware of, and now I'll, you'll all be anthropologists when you walk out of here, is that I started paying attention really in the mid to late 1990s with what I'm calling the cultural complaint about the end of life. What we all started to see, this is before the blog sphere so much, but in uh, op-ed pieces, in news articles, and in films, Bill Moyer did a series on this on, on um, public television, was that patients and families were complaining about too much technology, too much time in the hospital, and not enough control at the end of life. And I started paying attention to the way the complaints were playing out in American life. But in addition to that, because I'm in a medical center and I have a network of physician colleagues and I started asking others away from UCSF, I began to realize that not only were patients and families complaining, but physicians were complaining too. Now it's very interesting. Patients and families were complaining, I don't have enough control at the end of life, there's too much technology, we want more care. Doctors were complaining, Patients and their families don't know when to stop. They want a lot of technology. We would rather stop sooner. And what I became aware of is these two points of view kept going. And 25 years after I first observed this tension in these points of view, they're still there. Patients and families are still complaining about this. Doctors are also complaining that patients and families are demanding too much in terms of technology and do everything doctor. So we're in this kind of tense situation about healthcare delivery in an aging society at a moment when there's more technology, more new discoveries, more options for treatment than ever before. All of this has created a sort of perfect storm about what to do when it comes to making decisions about critical illness and medical treatment as we age. And I first started to, um, uh, I first decided that I wanted to go into the hospital itself to look at the ways in which end of life occur there. Because I was told by one lovely physician colleague of mine that nobody has gone into a hospital to study the way the end of life takes place 
since William Osler, the very noted physician at Johns Hopkins, did in 1908. And this was about in 1998. So he convinced me that it was time. Also, in 1995, there was a famous study done by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation called SUPPORT, S-U-P-P-O-R-T, that got a lot of attention both in the media but in all the medical journals. And this was a study carried out at five academic medical centers. The first results were published in 1995. It, was, it, it took place all around the country. The West Coast Center was the UCLA Medical School, so it was part of the UC system. And the study was guided by, at that point, some traditional principles of bioethics, whereby the big assumption and the big truth was that if patients can be autonomous and, and claim what they want to physicians who would have to listen then maybe this, this culture of complaint would go away. Well, what they didn't get right away was that physician, physicians you know, are working in this big, complex system, and they're not the only players. And patients frequently don't know what to want, and I think everybody in this room gets that. You know, you just get that. You get it with yourselves and you get it with accompanying family members to to clinic visits where a lot of options are offered. So I decided, you know, I couldn't do this in five medical centers, but I did it in three, uh, that I wanted to go in and look at what was going on. And what I found was that it wasn't the dyad, it wasn't the doctor and the patient at all who were making decisions. It was about the structure of healthcare delivery. It was about the bureaucracy of medical care. It was about the way the values of medicine, the training of physicians, the uh, health economic incentives were that patients got on a pathway. And I, call, I say the metaphor is like an airport walkway but the sides in the hospital are very high, and it takes a lot of gumption and guts to jump out of the system. So when you enter the hospital system at the end of life, unless somebody says stop, you're on this pathway to the intensive care unit, critical care, and all of the things that the public is claiming not to want. But while I was doing that study, I also realized that the reasons all of this happens at the very end of life are driven by causes much farther upstream, much farther earlier in a patient's disease trajectory, earlier in what happens in the healthcare system. And my um, path into the work that became ordinary medicine was to investigate what happens way upstream in the biomedical research enterprise in clinical trials, in insurance decisions about payment and reimbursement that finally determine and influence and actually orchestrate what happens in the exam room when the doctor says, let's talk about risk standards and evidence, and let me give you some options. So and I, the patient I just, says, what would you do, doctor? I want to unpack some of that and then have us dive in. Okay. So... To emphasize one of these phrases you and I have talked about, of people who aren't trained in medicine don't know what to want. Think about that. So we're only going to know to ask for something that's on the menu. You don't know to ask the chef what's, what's not on the menu tonight that you might want. And 
what's on the menu, what we're hearing you say and what's, what's written about in ordinary medicine is not necessarily everything that's possible. And there's a reason why that's hidden from most of us. It's hidden from doctors, it's hidden from patients and families, and it may even be hidden from administrators and pharmaceuticals and, and Medicare. We're gonna hear about all these players and how they actually come together and create a menu that then gets delivered as, here's what you can choose, that limits in reality what's possible in healthcare. It's far bigger than what we're being told we can ask for. So, so as we focus in on trying to teach ourselves to think about what we want and therefore what we can ask for well beyond the menu, we're gonna then name these links, these chain reactions that Sharon describes from her research of seeing here's what's being put into motion, here's what's being put into play that ends up narrowing our options, narrowing our menu, narrowing what we even know to ask for. So why don't you start like way upstream? What's the first sort of constraint, that first link? Well, before I do that, of course, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to just um, uh, let you know how I, why I, a little bit more about how I got to the most upstream. So I started in clinics, uh, both at UCSF but in many other places, and I did this study in several places in the U.S. Because because we're an aging society, because there's more biomedical research than ever before and more treatment options, I wanted to look at sort of what I considered the crux of the matter, which is the fact that the biggest audience for medical treatment today is the aging population. And, I, and people with Medicare insurance have access to all of the treatments that are now available to us. So that I wanted to look at the Medicare population. And I even uh, ratcheted it up a bit. I started to look at patients over 70 coming into specialty clinics where they had very serious and potentially life-threatening problems because I wanted to look at the most difficult decisions we as individuals and a society are faced with. So I went into cardiac clinics where people were given the option of the implantable defibrillator, which we can talk about in a minute. I wanted to look at Uh, organ transplant clinics because more and more older individuals were becoming eligible for kidney and liver transplant. This was a new development in American life. I wanted to go to oncology clinics because more people are living with cancer into later ages and living well. And uh, I wanted to look at dialysis. That's the most low-tech of the procedures that I looked at because the graying of the dialysis population is really extreme. The, uh, the most growing segment of that population is over 75 years old. And dialysis in that population, you know, is a chronic therapy. People don't get better, but of course it keeps people alive. And I wanted to understand what that was like for patients, families, and physicians. So those are the therapies that I spent time in clinics looking at. And, uh, you know, in those airless exam rooms where there's hardly any oxygen, I sat there as the fly on the wall taking up more oxygen and with everybody's permission to do so, and I took a lot of notes. And I realized after months of this, I heard the same themes over and over. It didn't matter 
what illness the person had or what specialty clinic they were in. But the talk from physicians was about standards, standards of care. Um, I heard things like, um, doing nothing is a risk. Um, so I, and I heard these things over and over, and I realized the way in which the conversations were taking place had to do with these larger structures. So to answer Don's question, I realized that this chain begins in the biomedical research enterprise, which is now a $100 billion enterprise. And, you know, the budget of UCSF, we're one player in this vast scheme, is, you know, $6 billion now. I mean, it's... There's a, it's a lot of money in medical research, medical education, and, of course, clinical care. So, so, so before this sort of industry of science, of biomedical research, um, how something was considered standard of care was what? what? How would doctors say, you know what, this is what I think you have, and this is what I recommend we do about it? It was based on their training and their personal experience. Okay, and so then something changed. Things changed along the way. So by the 1980s, before actually the ballooning, the mushrooming of money being poured into biomedical, the biomedical research engine, in the 1980s, a couple of things happened. First of all, biotech emerged on the scene. The genetic revolution happened, and of course UCSA played a big, played a big role in all of that. The other thing was... Because there were so many treatments emerging, the issue of evidence, how does a physician decide what is actually the evidence on which to base treatment decisions became a big issue. And the idea of standardization came into play. And there's been arguments inside of medicine ever since that. The arguments have been going on for 30 years. Should there be standards? that are absolute, or should physicians learn to trust their own instinct out of years of experience and knowledge? And I think the way it has come out, and a good physician will tell you, it's a combination of both. This is the art and the science of medicine together. You can appreciate the tension, right? Because on the one hand, there are diseases that we can categorize that people then experience, but then there are individual people whose lives influence how those diseases evolve and manifest. So to have a standard to say this is how we treat a disease versus to say I have a standard of how to treat everyone as individuals, there's a, an inherent Absolutely. tension. Absolutely. So all of that was coming to the fore at the same time as the research engine just exploded. And um, one of the things that I became aware of when I started to dig down to do this research is that the pharmaceutical industry followed by biotech, started to play a larger and larger role in the biomedical research engine. So that, here's, here's an interesting comparison. In 1980, the pharmaceutical industry um, paid for thir- about 30%, 32% of all of the clinical trials that existed. In other words, these are the experiments that are done first on animals, then on small human populations, then on larger populations to determine whether a drug is safe and whether it's useful for treating a disease. So in the 1980s, the biggest player in funding this kind of research was the National Institutes of Health government. 
And the people who conducted that research were trained researchers from all branches of biomedical science, including MDs, MD-PhDs, and MDs who wanted to do clinical research, including a lot of people at UCSF. But by the mid-1990s, the, thing, the picture started to shift. By the mid-1990s, 50% of clinical research was funded by the pharmaceutical industry and biotech, and 50% by the NIH. Today, it's about 60 or 65% of research that is organized, determined, funded by industry, and less by, that is funded and organized by the NIH. This has massive ramifications because private industry's goal is the bottom line. It's market share. It isn't about discovery and truth and patient care. So the goals from the get-go are entirely different when industry is controlling the research question, what counts as evidence of good treatment, and then how you interpret the data. And every once in a while, there's a scandal that hits the front page of the New York Times that you know, an article in the New England Journal was ghostwritten. It was really written by the pharmaceutical industry. Things like this occur. That doesn't happen so often, but the influence overall, even without these scandals, of the way in which private industry influences the way in which research gets conducted has a huge effect on all of us. Now, I also want to say that this is complicated because much research, a great deal of research, is actually done together. The NIH and private industry. Projects are very, clinical trials are very, very expensive to run, and you need both. You need the discovery of the scientists, but then you need the money of industry to be able to perform the clinical trial. So a lot of this is hand, happening in tandem, but overall, the bigger picture is industry is controlling more of what happens in the basic research and the research that leads to clinical trials. The other thing that's happened, and this started happening in the year 2000, is that the clinical trial piece of this has exploded absolutely exponentially. In the year 2000, the government started a website, which you can all go on to, called clinicaltrials.gov, G-O-V. And right there on the home page, you'll see right there at the top right-hand corner, I think it is, it tells you how many active clinical trials there are in how many of the United States and in what countries and how many countries in the world. So when clinicaltrials.gov was established in the year 2000, there were 4,000 clinical trials registered. In other words, people who conduct these trials register them so that, uh, so that um, investigators can tre- keep track and the public can keep track. So that's institution, university, as well as industry trials. It was all coming. Uh, absolutely. Some, some in hospitals that aren't affiliated with universities, mm-hmm. universities and private industry. Today, I think there's more than 250,000 trials listed actively in all 50 states and in 190 countries. And when you go home, you can just look it up and see, because the figure's going to change every week upward. So more clinical trials are generating more and more evidence. So this was the first piece of my chain that I, that I kind of conceptualized, this biomedical research industry is churning out more clinical trials, more of it is influenced by industry, and all of it results in more evidence. 
then what happens is, and we want this to happen, the evidence is reviewed by Medicare and by private insurance companies. And Medicare, which is such a large insurer, really determines the way in which the private insurance companies, Aetna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, et cetera, make decisions about reimbursement. Now, this is really tricky because, of course, we want Medicare and we want our private insurers to review the new evidence. I mean, we want the newest therapies. We want, you know, there's a lot of progress in medicine over the years, and we are the beneficiaries of of this, our generations. And we want that to continue to happen. And the way it happens is that Medicare's review committees sit down and they look at the evidence generated by these clinical trials a lot of it produced by industry. And they are generally very generous, and anything that looks positive and they give it their good scrutiny, they say, okay, we'll reimburse it. Once something is deemed reimbursable by Medicare first and then private industry, doctors will prescribe it. Doctors won't prescribe anything that's not reimbursable. Why? Because guess what? They won't be paid, right? So. Uh, besides which, they trust that all of these reviews mean that the evidence is trustworthy and they can share it with their patient communities. So um, once something is reimbursable, doctors will prescribe it. The other thing that instantly happens, like this, is it becomes standard of care. And this has to do with this, this whole burgeoning issue of how do you create standards and how do you evaluate evidence. Once something is considered standard, then physicians across the world can talk to each other about it. They can compare notes about how you treat a patient. Are you using this? This is what's standard. Well, I am, and this is how it is for this patient group, or this is how it is for this patient group. This is how clinical knowledge can move forward. We have standards. But it's interesting the way it occurs. It occurs once the insurance industry has reviewed the clinical trial evidence. And the clinical trial evidence is only reviewed if it's given to them. And what I mean by that is it's sort of like the menu I was talking about as patients, what doctors will offer you. Medicare will only review what's offered them. And if the tables, this teeter-totter has shifted toward an industry-driven agenda of what's lucrative, shall we say, then what evidence is going to get generated? There's a whole lot of other evidence that could be generated, but if it's not necessarily lucrative, it won't be done and it won't then pass through Medicare Mm -hmm. and it won't then pass through to doctors. And so you won't ever see it on your menu. So... The other thing that happens, and this is sort of the last piece of this chain, is that once something becomes standard of care, it also becomes ethically necessary. And this is, as an anthropologist, what I started to see in these clinic situations where it was one doctor, one patient, and maybe a whole group of family members. Um, So that this is where it gets complicated for all of us. When a doctor says, this is standard, or this is what we're going to do, it automatically is known to be ethically necessary, and therefore it's very hard for anybody to say no, for doctors to say no, for patients to say no, and for families to say no. So I want to give you, so this is pretty abstract. I want to give you an example of what this looks like. 
Uh, I want to tell you a few patient stories before our time is out, but let me give you just one example of how this big engine upstream works to influence what happens in patients' lives. So the great example that I followed when I started this research in 2002 was the implantable cardiac defibrillator. You know these things. They are now attached to pacemakers. They're very little. The technology for inserting them is simpler and simpler, very easy. Um, It's one of medicine's miracles. And this is um, really when you watch ER and the crash card is brought in to to, um, uh, pump on people's chests and restore a normal heart rhythm, this little computer chip attached by a wire into the heart does that simply without a lot of outside equipment. So people can be walking around with this thing. So this was invented, discovered and invented in the 1980s for use only in the rarest circumstances for people with congenital heart problems. In other words, for people who who might die young otherwise from a serious cardiac problem. But what happened starting in 2002 was very interesting. We have an aging population. And of course, who is the audience and who is the market for industry? It's the growing aging population. So we have an aging population, of course, more of whom are going to have heart ailments because the heart starts to have problems after lots and lots of years. So a series of clinical trials was started in 2002 that went to 2005. So over a three-year period, nine clinical trials were conducted by industry, but also with NIH involvement, all of which showed benefit of treatment for people who had never suffered before a cardiac event. Before 2002, the standard was you only use this device in somebody who had a congenital problem who was young or somebody who had already suffered an almost lethal heart attack. That was the only time it was used. But these clinical trials and a series of them, all published in the medical journals, I mean, if you were a doctor in any specialty, you saw these these reports, showed that, oh, there's a benefit to putting in an ICD in patients who've never suffered a potentially lethal cardiac arrhythmia. What happened was that in 2004 and 5, Medicare started to review the evidence of these clinical trials. And they decided that, yes, this is good evidence. We will reimburse for this in in this new patient population, patients who've never had a cardiac event, but, of course, who have other biological indicators that this could be useful as well. As a result, more people started to get them. Many more, hundreds of thousands more, and before it was just a a few. So today, many people in many medical centers are getting the ICD. And what's happened over time is that physicians have learned gradually over this period in the the early part of the millennium to consider normal and ordinary the age limit moving up for putting in one of these devices. So the problem with putting in a device that corrects a non-normal heart rhythm in somebody who is in their late 80s, early 90s, late 90s, and beyond is that it prevents the silent heart attack in the night, the kind of death we all say we want. 
So it makes, it makes the end of life very complicated ethically for physicians, for family members, and for patients. And what happened during this period when this device started to be used more was that physicians didn't, turn about, didn't talk to patients about turning it off, the option of turning it off, because they weren't trained to do so by the um, ICD reps or by anybody. These were physicians in practice. They weren't in medical school getting training. So that it didn't occur to them that down the road there might be problems around wanting to have this device turned off. Now there is a huge ethics literature around the issue of turning off this device. It reminds me of the Greek myth of Eos, the goddess of the dawn, just as a little aside, who prayed, she requested Zeus to have her mortal lover become immortal, which Zeus granted her. But she failed to specify with that immortality that it include immortal immortal youth. So he became immortal. But he kept aging. But he kept aging. <laughs> and, and the description, actually, if you go to the Greek text, is scarily similar to how it's described of this body and this mind becoming so decrepit, and yet it won't die. And it's what you've just described, <laughs> in a sense. I mean, we laugh, but it it's tragic. It yeah, truly it's can hard. be tragic as, it's a, hard. A, as the person and his family witnessing this. So one of the things that results from this extraordinary success is that physicians are now talking about, I, I thought this was extreme language, but it's in the medical journals, an epidemic <clears throat> excuse me, of heart failure. So that when you enable this device to um, continue to keep people alive whose heart would otherwise give out, you create many more kinds of cardiac problems, all of which need d- decisions made around them. And it, be- it becomes much more complex for patients and families especially, as well as for physicians. So um, my wonderful research assistants and I interviewed a lot of physicians who implant this device over the years. And let me read you what uh, one of them had to say, and he's representative of many. We come all the way to the point where we realize scientifically that you can put an ICD in someone who's never had a cardiac event at all without doing any other testing. Just bring them in from the office and put it in. Because at some point, they may face this arrhythmia risk, and scientifically, they'll be better if they have this than someone who doesn't. We've all grown to accept that. So I think I've changed in terms of my thinking of what's treatable and what should be treated. But he goes on to say, when I first started in practice, the notion of putting a defibrillator in an 80-year-old patient, I was thinking that was just the most extreme circumstance. How could we justify preventing sudden death in an 80-year-old person? And now it's commonplace because the evidence has accumulated. Now my threshold, I have more of the incredulous reaction to someone who may be over 90. I feel it changing, and I feel me changing as well. So physicians learn to become normalized to what is evidence and what becomes standard. So what happens in the clinic, the way I became aware of this was the patient would come in, and they would get a cardiac workup, and the doctor would say, you are eligible 
the word eligible was used a lot. That means both medically eligible according to the clinical trial criteria and Medicare eligible for reimbursement. You are eligible now for the ICD. Here are its benefits. Do you want one? Well, who's going to say no to that? And let me, I also want to say the reason this is complex and the reason I hung in there with this research over many years is because it's successful. I mean, on the one hand, and let's face it, medicine, medical techniques are very successful. They keep people alive, and the ICD has been a very, very positive advance for a lot of people. But also, it has a shadow side, and I wanted to be able to talk about both in my research. So that's what I did for a number of different procedures. But the ICD is just this great example because the clinical trials are so stark. They happened between 2002 and 2005. Then Medicare um, deemed, deemed the evidence such that they decided to reimburse and immediately the population receiving this device shot up. And shortly thereafter, the shadow side started to emerge with this. What do I do? I don't want this. Now, my understanding in, in reading your book is that the evidence that's used in the clinical trials that were created are typically around a certain age range, and there are certain criteria that participants must meet, and otherwise they're excluded, they're not allowed to participate. And yet, that evidence of that trial and the success of the trial is still used to justify maybe utilizing that technology or that drug or that intervention in a person who maybe would never have been in that trial. Absolutely correct. So um, Robert Butler, the founding director of the National Institute on Aging, part of the National Institutes of Health, worked tirelessly to make sure older people, that means people over 70 and even 80, were enrolled in different clinical trials. But he didn't uh, have much success. Why? Because if you enroll somebody in a clinical trial who has multiple conditions, and as we get older, we all have multiple conditions, you muddy the waters. You know, you can't have really a clean research uh, study. Your study will get dinged, it'll get critiqued, it won't get published. So you want as clean a study as possible, and the only way to do that is only to have one variable per patient enrolled in a clinical trial. Older patients frequently have many more things wrong than one, just one. They may not be life-threatening, but they can still muddy the waters of the results of a clinical trial. So that, just to break that down again, so if, if you take someone who the only thing wrong with them is, is, a cardiac their, is their heart problem. doesn't pump exactly right, but otherwise their kidneys are fine, their brain is fine, their lungs are fine, their skin is fine, their thyroid is fine, everything else is fine. So then you can do the intervention, whether it's a medication or a device, and say, did it make a difference? Whatever my outcome is, usually long life, usually avoiding a heart attack or something, not being in the hospital, measures like that. And if it works, then you can say, yeah, it works for this person. And if it doesn't, then you can say, mm, maybe we're off. But if you have someone in that trial whose thyroid maybe isn't perfect and whose lungs aren't perfect, in addition to their heart not being perfect, and then the trial doesn't work, you're like, ah, it could have been their lungs. It still helps their heart. Or it could have been their kidneys. You don't know. And when you're trying to get something passed off as this is good, you want this, you want to be able to show that. You don't want to risk 
something interfering with that outcome. And so you exclude those people. Right. So this is, this is a big problem. And geriatricians, those who treat older people as a specialty, are very aware of this. They say... I've heard many say to me, you know, the clinical trial evidence shows that this is a really terrific device. But my patient just turned 89, and she has the following complications. I actually don't know if, if, if I should advise her to get this device or if I should, you know, uh, uh, advocate for it. But what happens in the clinic is very interesting, and I've seen this a lot more, actually, in oncology which is the, that even if a doctor is on the fence, is ambivalent about recommending something, prescribing a medication or a device, because for this reason, that the patient has multiple issues and is older, he or she will say, this is standard and I want to give you the option. When that happens, it's very hard to say no. And I heard in in oncology a lot, physicians would say, I don't necessarily recommend more chemotherapy at your age. I'm not sure you can withstand it. But the evidence shows that this chemo regimen works for 30% of patients with your condition. And I wanted to give you the option. These are the kinds of conversations I heard in the clinic that made me look farther upstream. And when an option is put on the table it's very hard to say no. And physicians want to put all the options on the table. Why? For a variety of reasons. First of all, if it's standard of care based on clinical trials with a generally younger population, they certainly don't want to exclude that. They, they, they can't, and they, they feel legally bound. They need to offer what is standard. Second, they also know that if they don't give the patient and family a sort of menu of options, There's a lot of other doctors out there, including one down the hall probably, and if the patient doesn't hear what he or she wants to hear right then, they'll go for a second opinion. And of course, insurance now makes people people go for second opinions. So doctors want to err on the side of a lot of information. I don't necessarily advise this, but this is what's standard, and here are your options. And that becomes very, very confusing. And I think... You know, the, a wonderful, I have to give you this wonderful example. People, I'm sure, have read this wonderful, Atul Gawande's wonderful book, where he talks about a lot of things, actually. I mean, he talks about end of life, hospitalization, a lot of time on um, new experimental communities for aging. And, of course, he talks about his father's illness and his father's spinal tumor. And, you know, he, of course, is a famous surgeon, and we learn from the book that his father's a physician and his mother's a physician. So you've got three physicians who go in for all of these medical consultations to the doctors. And his father's tumor is treated for a while, and it's held at bay. But then it flares up again, and the father starts to have more symptoms. So they go to the oncologist at the Cleveland Clinic, incredibly well-trained. And um, I have to read you what he writes because it's this issue of information and options that becomes so paramount in what goes on in the clinic. So he writes, the oncologist was now center stage. She proceeded in information mode. She laid out eight or nine chemotherapy options in about 10 minutes. Average number of syllables per drug, four to one. 
I love this. It was dizzying. He could take bifaxizumab, carboplatin, temozolamide, thalidomide, vincristine, vinblastine, or some other options I missed in my notes. She described a variety of different combinations of those to consider as well. The only thing she did not offer or discuss was doing nothing. So if three physicians in the room don't understand the options, imagine what it's like for the rest of us when you're offered this kind of menu. One of the issues around this that is so uh, complicated about the era that we are all in, regardless of age, is that patient autonomy is this powerful social value. This is a good thing. And it is, it is about the pendulum swing in medicine from paternalism, where the doctor knew best, and the doctor just said, this is what we will do now. The pendulum has now swung the other way, where doctors feel that they are responsible for putting all options on the table and for letting patients and families make all the decisions. But it's too confusing. And we, when there are many, many options, and when the issues are life-threatening, don't know what to do. Now, this isn't so complicated when you break your arm and it's a clean fracture and you need to have it set. That's easy. But when it's very complicated and drugs can interact with other drugs that you're already on, or the ICD can prolong a painful dying process, or... Uh, or it's a third round of chemotherapy with a 2 or 3% success rate in patients your age, then things become very complicated. I can't miss this opportunity, though, to make a little plug. And, and one of my, my own minimal qualms with the tools book, but nonetheless, one is one you pointed out, which is they didn't give the option to do nothing. And I think that's a mistake in language choice on his part. There's a quote in your book about another physician saying that doing nothing is non-standard. And again, this points back to something I harped on earlier, which is that nothing, the term of nothing, the only reason it's showing up is because we haven't created the equivalent wealth of evidence of what that something alternative is to all the device and drugs and things that have mounting evidence. There is something. It's never nothing. I really want to be clear because as a hospice and palliative care physician, there is always something we can do for patients and families. It just may not look like a device or a drug Mm -hmm. or one of these multi-syllable things. It doesn't mean it's nothing. So I just couldn't let that one go. No, that's, okay. that's important. <laughs> I think one of the things that's happened, and a wonderful sociologist colleague of mine pointed this out to me very, very succinctly. He said what's happened because of these options and the way evidence is generated is that ethics has been offloaded onto patients and families. And I feel that's really true, and I saw this in clinics all the time. It used to be physicians made the decisions. Or they would say, you could do A or B, but really I recommend A. But now, as Gawande points out, when there's eight or nine options sometimes, or when it's murky what is actually the best choice, or when standards are presented as standard, but really I wouldn't recommend them for you, although it's standard, things become much harder to to grapple with. 
And I think one of the biggest qualms in American society now is the fact that so many millions of us are faced with these kinds of decisions. I mean, discussions at the bedside, discussions around kitchen tables all over the country are going on all the time around these issues. And I think one of the reasons the whole dignity in dying movement has become so important for people, and now, you know, now there's six states that approve this, is because of this, because there's so many options, and we can't know as patients what's best. We can't know what to want, and we're given these We've, we're given these uh, words that are confusing. Well, this is standard, but I don't recommend it. Or this is, you know, I think this is necessary, but I don't know. Or doing nothing is non-standard. It's like, well, then, then maybe I, I need to do something. But this causes huge qualms for patients and families, and the qualms don't go away. And really, things are going to get more complex because there are ever more treatment options coming down the pike. And, you know, they all have their own series of side effects, or not necessarily side effects like a drug side effect, but down-the-road side effects. So one example, of course, is the issue of dementia. When people can live longer and longer and longer because of all of medicine's wonderful interventions, other problems arise as well. And we can't predict, you know, of course, what will happen for any individual loved one. That's impossible to do. But as an aging society... We are all very aware now of this issue of social obligation and responsibility around, around a frail, growing elderly population where there's no really care base for, for how to handle this. So before we open up to questions, which we will do, um, I wanted to put you on the spot a little bit and, and ask you to do what Atul did, which is to share your own personal experience with ordinary medicine, because you've had it. So, um, my father. Well, there, was a, there were a couple things. So, the first is uh, when I decided to go into the um, uh, kidney clinics, because I was very interested in the, the, the more recent phenomenon of older uh, patients being eligible for kidney transplant, I went to see a wonderful medical director of a transplantation clinic, and he invited me. I said, I'm an anthropologist, and I want to learn about older people receiving kidneys or the process you go through by which people become eligible for kidneys and how do people find out about this and what is this all about. So he said, sit down, and then he said, "Um, what would you do if your father needed a kidney and, uh, and he needed one? quickly, but he was way down on the waiting list because he has type O blood, and in a major metropolitan area, the waiting time for a kidney that's matched with type O blood is about eight years. That's how it is right now. He said, um, you know, would you donate a kidney to your father? And that was the first I had ever heard of the generation going up this way, of adult children donating kidneys to their parents. And my first instant response to that, my father was 85 at the time and did not need a kidney, I'm happy to say. (laughs) I'm happy to say for me as well as him. But what my instant thought was, well, what if one of my children needs one? So I was immediately caught in this ethical tangle of a multi-generational story of love, how do you express it, obligation, need, and what medicine has created. 
the kind of dilemma medicine has created. And that absolutely brought me in to studying kidney transplant and the whole issue of living um, living donor transplantation, which is going on all the time now. And you'll, you'll start, now that I've mentioned it, you're going to start to see it and you'll read about it. But the more, the more uh, I think what John was trying to get at was something I told her about, which was um, when my father was um, 93 and in pretty good health otherwise, he was a physician, so he diagnosed himself really with pancreatic cancer. And uh, he went to his uh, GP, who with various tests, then confirmed it. And um, I said, "What do you want to do?" And he said, "Well, let's go to UCSF. I work here, uh, and I want another. I want you know an opinion about what kinds of treatments I should have." And his physician, of course, also community physicians refer their patients to major medical centers because there's more options, right? He can't do too much in his office, but knowing he would come to UCSF or, you know, Cleveland Clinic or Mayo Clinic or Stanford, there's more options. There's more expertise for more treatments, including being enrolled in clinical trials. So so I brought my father into UCSF to a wonderful clinician who I know who made time for him. But, of course, one thing we were talking about earlier, the great thing about being an anthropologist is that doctors run late, right? (laughs) So that I could sit with patients and their families in waiting rooms for an hour and two hours and learn about their lives and learn about their illnesses and learn about their concerns. But, of course, when I was the daughter of a patient, my father, I sat there for two hours also waiting for the oncologist to be free and to give us time. But he was a wonderful, terrific clinician, and he said to my father, Dr. Kaufman, enjoy your life. Go home and enjoy your life. So I drove my father home, and he was agitated. I said, well, you know, let just, just, he didn't really have any symptoms. He wasn't in pain, which was pretty remarkable. And, you know, I visited him often, and a few days later I came back and said, you know, how are you? What's going on? He said, I want another opinion. I want to go down to Stanford. <laughs> and I said, well because of all of my research and all of my work, (laughs) I said, well, you know, I'm not going to take you down there. And I think we should call hospice. Because if we call hospice, you will never have to go to an emergency room. He had had a few visits to emergency rooms over other things not related to this new diagnosis. I said, an MD will come to the house. I said, doesn't that sound good? He said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And he mulled it over for a couple days, and then he said, okay, you can call hospice. And I, the way I pitched it to him, because I know about this, was that we're not talking about imminent death. We're talking about making your life easier so you don't have to go sit in an emergency room. And he really, and he, you know, and he realized that that was going to be, that was good. And so hospice came in and they were fantastic and they were there for four months before, before he died in his own bed. But the only reason that the scenario or or, or I think the main reason the scenario went that way is because of my knowledge. And one of the things I learned being in hospitals and being in these, uh, when I was looking at the way death occurs there and when I was doing this study in clinic spaces was that unless a family member or you as a patient have had an experience of being on the pathway, the tramway, the walkway that you can't jump over, and have had a not good experience around a medical procedure or end of life with a spouse, a parent, a sibling, a loved one, 
Unless you've had a bad experience, you have no experience. You don't know. And this is something I don't know exactly how to grapple with as a community and as a society. In other words, the culture of complaint is vast. And the social preoccupation for the timing of death is huge. You know, we are just, we are so preoccupied with the timing of death. What is the right time to die? Yet, we can't learn from the experience of others when we're in a hospital situation or when we're in these clinic situations being offered a menu. It's very hard It's because every situation is so different. So that's one of the tensions that I've grappled with as an anthropologist researcher and I think that we all grapple with. We all hear stories about our friends and uh, other family members who've you know, had a disastrous hospitalization near the end of life or who've gone down a road of a third or fourth chemotherapy line and it's caused a lot of suffering. But then... If we get a diagnosis or someone very close to us gets a a certain kind of life-threatening diagnosis, it's as though we never heard any of those stories. And there's something about that that I I, I don't know how we can can learn from um, all of the stories that are out there. And they're now, of course, out there on the web, in blogs, you know, in op-ed pieces, in films, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, the, the and, and in memoirs, you know, there's best-selling books out there all the time about about um, end-of-life scenarios or about going down a certain road in medicine. And if only I had known, I would gone, have gone another route. So it's it's complex. It's a complex. It's a complex scene. I mean, I think it's striking that in this wonderful visit that you were able to arrange for your father at UCSF that while the doctor said, go enjoy your life, he didn't actually say, how about we enroll you in hospice? It took you. Right. Because you knew. So again, that menu, we keep coming back to this. It's not just about what patients and family know. Fortunately for your father, you knew. It's also what doctors know, what your healthcare team knows. And doctors have a tendency to have some tunnel vision, even at massive very highly respected and integrated medical centers like UCSF, we still get siloed because of how healthcare is currently structured. We're trying to change that. Having conversations like this is one way to do it. And I think one of the things that you say, which I think is a great way to open up to questions, is there's there's this tension and this language that doctors will often communicate amongst themselves in regard to patients and families, which they'll say they're in denial. They don't realize how sick this person is. They're dying. This family's just in denial. And you make just, again, this, this intelligent fly-on-the-wall observation and distinction, which is, I don't think it's denial. Mm-hmm. I think it's inexperience. It's, they don't exactly. know. Yeah. You can't know what you've never experienced. And you can't know the range of treatment options that are out there. I mean, somebody with a diagnosis of cancer does not know that there's eight kinds of chemotherapy to choose from. And know? what they really mean and what they really look and, like and, for them. And how you would. There's no way. There's yeah. no way. Yeah. So with that, I want to thank you and for thank walking you. <laughs> us through just a tip of the iceberg of ordinary medicine. Let me be clear about that. There is so much here to savor. In addition to your other books, the first really I, I consider the, the prequel in a way of And a Time to Die, which is just an exceptional book. But this as well, I highly recommend it. I want to open it up to all of you who have been so generous with your time. What questions would you like 
answered. Here is your chance. Again, pulling back the curtain. Or yes. comments. Or comments. Comments yeah. without questions. Hi. Um, something you mentioned about hospice, hospice, which has been incredible for our family and families, I know. And I'm struck at how rare it is for the doctor to mention it. And we'll, you know, in my experience, we'll say, well, what about hospital? And they're like, hospice. They're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but they don't bring it up. It's, I mean, maybe more they do now. But as of a few years ago, I wasn't seeing that. And I had a question about, um, so there's a, a relatively new advanced directive form, which is incredibly complete. And are, are you seeing patients using that? Is that helpful in families and patients in dealing with end-of-life issues? Have you seen that? Well, Do you I want to repeat just for that? Oh, so this was a uh, two-part question. The first was... Um, how rare or common is it for doctors to think of hospice and, and recommending hospice or mentioning hospice to family members? And is that coming into the scene more now? The second part of the question was um, the advanced directive form, and which there's a new. There, these are replaced periodically, and it, each state has its own. And how common is it, and how well is it used, and is it used, and to what effect? So to answer both of those questions, uh, we both can chime in on that, but I will start by saying that uh, for hospice, one of the things that's been very slow in medical education is being able to train physicians to be aware of the needs of palliative medicine and end-of-life care that includes hospice. So the thing about learning how to be a physician is you go into medicine to save life, not to think about how to ease the passage at the end of life. So it's very hard after all of these years of training and after a lot of years of practice, when there's a lot of evidence for therapies that are considered useful, to at some point not just recommend there's one more chemotherapy we can try or let's go, now that the ICD doesn't work anymore, you're eligible for a left ventricular assist device, which is really the artificial heart, which is now being used. Thousands of patients have this. It's very hard not, as a physician, not to say, there's something else in my toolkit, and to say instead, there's something else in my toolkit, but also I want to talk to you about hospice. So it's very hard for physicians to do that. But I must say, I train a lot of young medical students, those going into their residency, more and more are interested in end-of-life care and palliative medicine. I think these things take years, a generation, but I think it's happening. In terms of the advanced directive form, I think the most important thing about that form is that it enables people to talk about it and for family members to share in a sense, what they think they would want. But when I was doing my earlier study, And a Time to Die, I learned the following. 10% of people write these things, fill out these things. 10% of those find their way into the medical chart, and 10% of those are followed. Okay? So, uh, uh, but because the thing is, when you're filling out that form with a glass of wine, sitting at the table, you're... It's, it's hypothetical. When you can't breathe and the doctor or the nurse or your daughter says, Mom, do you want to breathe? The answer is usually yes, which means intubation in an extreme moment. So the thing is, people go against their own advanced directives. And doctors will say, you know, I don't think this person's at the end of life. I think there's something we can do to get him over the hump. So let's try this. Don't you want, as the spouse, sibling, 
adults are, don't you want me to try this? Or, I think I could try this. And it's going to be very hard for a family member to say, oh, no, 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 don't try this. Very, very hard. Because along that line, what I have, I have wonderful quotes from family members who say, if you say no to something, to an option like that, like intubation or a liver transplant, are you contributing to the death of your loved one? This is how family members perceive it if they don't push for more treatment. And it's very, very tough. You know, uh, David Reif, the um, political philosopher son of Susan Sontag, the famous um, social critic who had breast cancer when she was in her 40s and then came down with a very complex, lethal form of leukemia at age 72, she wanted... She was totally uh, mentally alert and fine otherwise and wanted everything done. And the doctors who she saw, top doctors, various parts of the country, um, said, well, you know, there's a clinical trial I could enroll you in. Anyway, she did a bone marrow transplant and she was enrolled in a clinical trial, which caused huge suffering at the end of her life. And David Reif, the son, writes about this in an extraordinary short book. It's an essay called Swimming in the Sea of Death, which I recommend. It is about his guilt as a family member. Should I have stopped this? Did I encourage her? Did I do the right thing? With no with, you know, not answer. And this essay is so powerful. And as an anthropologist, I see that essay as a cultural document of our time. He absolutely captures the ambivalence and the struggle among family members for knowing what to do about a loved one who is, has an option for some procedure or clinical trial or therapy that could really cause suffering or that could help prolong life while it's causing suffering. So these are, this is... This is the shadow side of medicine, which more and more of us are facing now, which is why I wanted to, to delve into it and you know, reveal these sides of the story. I think in regard to your asking about the more in-depth advanced directive, I don't know if you're referring to a document called The Five Wishes. Is that, or are well, you... It's a new, it's got separate pages, uh-huh. it's color, it's in color, and it gets very specific about who and what and where and when and you want this but you don't want that and it's um, so again I think just having a discussion around the table with your loved ones is is the important piece I, of it. I think, yeah, exactly. So the, the depth of a document versus the depth of ongoing discussions about what makes life worth living. What makes life meaningful to you now? What do you cherish about your life? Recognizing that as human beings, we're incredibly resilient and adaptable. So that while... And ambivalent. And and (laughs) can be ambivalent. But like at at certain points in time in our life, we may think, oh my gosh, if I lost my legs, life would not be worth living. I'm an athlete, I'm a skater, I'm a... Like, I couldn't imagine my life without that. And yet, if that were to come to pass, we find at times people who are like, no, no. There's a whole other side of me I never got to discover. You hear that for people who lose their eyesight and suddenly they hear music or they smell things in ways they couldn't have appreciated before. So I, I think your point is 
is so important that in the moment, if someone asks you, do you want me to do X, Y versus what you wrote in a document that was theoretical, is very challenging as compared to here's who I've known you to be my whole life or here are the things that you and I have shared together as a family or as partners and this is what I love about being alive and here's where my quality of life diminishes. And I think the more often we have those conversations then when we find ourselves in some other moment of distress, we have more to hold on to of saying, no, we've talked about this. And more family support. More family support. Not so much we've talked about this intervention, because the interventions are constantly changing, but we've talked about what makes this person who they are. I think we have time for just one more question. Hippocratic oath. Do no harm. Attention. Um, like, if you're sending young physicians out into the world, like, they maybe need to stop with the oath because you've got, um, because you've got the conflict and the tension, right? Like, right at that moment. But, but you kind of addressed that a little bit. But my other question, which you kind of didn't even mention, was the, the legal implications. Like, we're such a litigious society. Like, you know, where's that in your stream? So just to repeat, so the question of where does the legal arm of our society who really has a tendency to to be litigious. Which is, you know, why doctors, you know, maybe somewhere in this, you know. In this chain. In the chain chain of of events, yeah. That where are we. We get very cautious. So where does the legal side It hovers over the entire chain. It hovers over the entire thing. And physicians, of course, are very aware of it. And I've heard many physicians say now that in the hospital setting, they're writing in the medical chart not for each other anymore. In other words, you know, when the shift changes, they're writing for the law. So they're writing to protect themselves, that they've done everything. They've tried every procedure. They've done everything they can. So it hangs over the whole chain uh, in very insidious ways. And the whole idea that you need to offer these options, I, I think the law hangs over that too, maybe not as much as in the hospital setting, but in, in the clinic setting in the sense that you, you know, it's unlikely that a patient sues a doctor for not mentioning an option, but doctors need to feel safe. They need to feel comfortable doing their practice. I mean, this is hard work. So I have a lot of sympathy for physicians, by the way. I need to say that right up front. It's very hard work watch and watching what they go through all the time. So they want to, they want to give patients and families a lot of help, but they want to give them options, and they're wary that they need to because of reimbursement for themselves to earn a living and because that because of, of potential litigation down the road if they omit saying something or if they omit doing something. Or, you know, the, one, the issue of the one in a million. Well, I really don't feel I need to do a, a PET scan or an MRI for, every, for a headache. Every head, this is a common complaint of doctors. On the other hand, the patient's insurance is paying for it, and if I don't, and if there's a, prob- a tumor that I don't detect, then I'm, then I'm very vulnerable. So technology has made this, you know, the technology, imaging technologies specifically, have made all this much more complicated. We feel we need to use them. 
It's very expensive. It drives up the price of health care, but insurance covers it. And doctors feel they need to cover themselves. They need, they need to find out what's going on. And even, you know, I've heard doctors say, you know, I just want to be really conservative and really safe. I'd like you to go do this MRI. And it's a rare patient who's going to refuse. I mean, I think everybody in this room has probably said, that sounds like a good idea. Let's, let's go do the procedure. So it, it hovers. I hope you've enjoyed this, this evening. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you for being here. For a vexed topic. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.